Father, again, we just thank you for this privilege to be together to sing your praises, to sing unto you and and speak of your son Jesus. And we're so blessed to be able to do so. And Lord, I pray as we look into your word that you would enlighten our hearts, that we would see what you intended and that we would respond as you desire so that you would be greatly glorified through your son Jesus. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Today, as we are uh, just a day after Christmas and moving into the new year, I wanted to kind of put a bow on our Christmas uh, messages. And so we're going to be looking today at prophecy fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to see the despised deliverer, King Jesus, is our only hope. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2? And we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 23. And we've looked at Matthew. We've looked in chapter 1 and we've looked in chapter 2 so far this Christmas season. And um, uh, as we've looked at this, we've seen that Matthew is the presentation of King Jesus. He is uh, the King of the Jews. He is the Christ. And with that presentation, there is the teaching concerning his kingdom. And we see that very clearly. And yet within Matthew, we see the opposition and the rejection of King Jesus by the Jews, the very people uh, by which he would bring forth salvation. Salvation is from the Jews because Jesus is, Jew- is Jewish. Uh, this salvation, the people rejected. They rejected his own people. He came to them and they did not receive him. But as many as receive him, to them he gives the power to become children of God, even or to those who believe on his name. And so then we have in chapter 1 the genealogy of Jesus Christ on Joseph's side, which proves and and gives him the legal right to the throne, uh, the throne of David. He is rightfully the king of the Jews. And we also saw that uh, Joseph had a dilemma when we saw the birth of Jesus in chapter 1. That Mary was found to be with child, but it was from the Holy Spirit. And Joseph desired righteously to put her away uh, mercifully. But God intervened uh, through an angel in a dream to Joseph and told him to not fear, but to marry Mary, because that which was conceived in her womb is of the Holy Spirit, we see. Because God is taking on human flesh to save his people from their sins. And this all points to the fact that she will bear a son and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. God breaking the barrier between uh, man and God because of sin through his son Jesus Christ that we would be uh, able to have a relationship with him. He is the Lord who saves. He is the one who broke the sin barrier. He is uh, Jesus, God who took on human flesh. And then we came to chapter 2 and we saw three responses to the birth of King Jesus. And they were uh, odd responses, uh, They were odd responses because of what we saw with the Jews and what we saw with Herod and with the Magi. Look at chapter 2, verse 1, and this is going to lead into our passage because these two passages are connected. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And this was during the the days of Herod the king. This is Herod the Great. Uh, We see he is, Luke chapter 1, 5, the king of Judea. He is the king there, appointed by Rome. 
And so Herod, this man who was uh, Herod the Great, was not so great. He was related to Esau. He was an evil man who killed many people to stay in power. And we'll see that today. We'll see he had no qualms in actually murdering children. Herod was a very, very evil man. And uh, they, the Roman Senate had declared that he was the king of the Jews. And so now there's this alternative king that they're asking about, where is he who's born king of the Jews? And obviously Herod, in his power-grabbing, uh, brutal uh, life uh, reality, uh, didn't want to see that happen. So what happens? We have these people arriving. Where is he who's born king of the Jews? For we saw his star, this is the middle of verse 2, and he used to have come to worship him. And you might remember, well, these were not most likely three kings. We, you know, we, they, were, they were a group of, uh, of magi, those who were most likely those who had descended from uh, those in whom Daniel was in charge of in Babylon, most likely. They were highly educated, and they had seen his star, and they knew that the king of the Jews had been born. They knew that. They knew that. And what did they do? They came and were coming to worship him. That was the reason. And so uh seems like everything's wonderful, yet we have a problem because Herod, Herod is the king of the Jews from a human perspective. And so then what happens? Uh, verse 3, And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And we saw this. We saw this about Herod, that he was all shaken up because of it. But what was strange was that all Jerusalem was shaken up too. Uh, they were, as we saw when we looked at this passage, they were in unbelief. And the Jesus who was coming here was going to uproot the, the boat or the apple cart. He was going to cause trouble and problems. So they were troubled rather than thinking, wow, the Messiah has come. Let us go see where he is. They didn't do that. Now Herod, wanting to protect his throne, uh, gathers the people, the priests together. Look at verse 4, gathering the chief priests, gathering together all the chief priests, the scribes of the people, that's all the religious leaders and the, and the Bible scholars of the time, uh, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born. And they knew the answer, and they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judea, are by no means least of the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star had appeared, he says. Or had appeared. The star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, make careful search for the child. And when you found him... Report to me that I too may come and worship him. Sounds like Herod wants to worship the child, but no, he doesn't. Herod is a very evil man. He's a deceitful man. And he is manipulating the Magi to find where the child is so that he could destroy him. And we saw that. We saw that. No, he is an evil man. His desire is not to worship. His desire is to destroy the Christ. He is uh, of Satan, his father, spiritual father, the devil, and so notice what happens. We notice that later on, we'll see this, that Joseph was warned in a dream that Herod was going to slay the kids, was going to slay uh, the, the, the child. And so notice the Magi, verse 9. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen. This is a supernatural, miraculous star. They had seen his star from the east initially, and that same star, lo, they saw it, and they followed it from Jerusalem to right, as we'll see here. And it says here, 
it went it that they had seen in the east went before them until they it came and stood over uh, where the child was and when they saw the star they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy and they came into the house and saw the child with Mary his mother and they fell down and worshiped him and opening their treasures they presented to him gifts of gold frankincense and myrrh and having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod they departed for their own country by another way these magi went at great lengths to worship the king to worship Jesus and he was probably around two years old at this time when they were in a house as we see they went to great lengths to worship him. And then they obeyed uh, the Lord when the Lord told them what to do. They did not go back to Herod. And they were uh, those who rejoiced with great joy also when they saw and then worshiped. So then we have these Magi arriving in Jerusalem looking for the king who was born, king, who was born king of the Jews. The unbelieving response of the Jews is exemplified by Herod's murderous hate. We see that they were all troubled. Uh, then we have the response of the Magi with very limited revelation, desiring to worship and seek the Lord, seek and worship him who is born king of the Jews. And so let me ask you today, is it a hard difficulty to come to church? Is it hard to do the things of Christ? Is it hard to get to a Bible study? Where's your heart at? You know, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, there should be a great desire to be with the body of Christ, a great desire to worship the Lord. Indeed, before I got saved, I went through the, the, played the game of the church thing and went to church and did the thing, but I did not have a changed heart. And God changed my heart. And I desire to worship Him. And I desire to worship Him. And I pray that you do too. So then, we have these magi seeking to worship. And now we're going to come into a passage here in which, uh, on the heels of this magi worshiping, reveals three prophecies that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Now notice, first of all, he uh, fulfills the redemptive promises of God as he was warned to flee to go to Egypt. Look at verse 13. Now when they had departed, that's who is that? That's the, the Magi. When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Here we have uh, these magi when they had departed. Speaking of the magi, and they were, remember, they were warned by God, the verse before, in a dream, right? Look at verse 12. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. And so after they had departed, we have this, behold, look, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. So now Joseph is back in the picture. We saw him in chapter 1. He is a righteous man. He is Mary's husband. He is not Jesus' biological father. We have Mary who conceived by the Holy Spirit. But Joseph is uh, is his uh, human father. Uh, Father, not biologically speaking, but is his father through marriage to Mary. And so here we have Joseph back in the picture. And the angel tells him again, appears to him, and tells him something. Now remember, this is, uh, this is an angel of the Lord. It's not the angel of the Lord. It is a messenger of the Lord. It appeared to him in a dream, saying, Arise and take the child, that's the baby Jesus, and his mother, and flee. Egypt, 
and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Pretty simple passage. I don't really need to explain it. Joseph is commanded to rise up, or literally rising up, take the child and his mother, and child speaking of Jesus, the mother speaking of Mary, and flee, or literally take flight to Egypt. Take flight to Egypt. And then he's commanded to remain there until he would receive further word from from the Lord through the angel. Remain there until I tell you. So why is he to do this? End of verse 13. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. Uh, He desires to kill him. That's what we see. He desires to take his life. Uh, In verse 20, we see it is to take his life. It's not simply just to destroy him. He wants to kill him. He wants to kill him. And this is the mindset of the unbeliever when confronted with Christ. Get Christ out of the way. Now, Herod had no consequences. He could murder uh, with no external consequences. There were no restraints on Herod. But as we see, our hatred is as good as murder. And here, uh, that's what non-believers do when confronted with Christ and unwilling to obey, unwilling to believe the gospel. They want to get Christ out of the way, out of the picture, out of the way. Nothing new uh, is under the sun, and nothing passes by the Lord. I read this earlier but Psalm 2 reveals this truth. Turn again to Psalm 2. We have uh, Herod the king uh, going against the Lord. Toe-to-toe, seemingly speaking, but not really, as we'll see. The Lord laughs at him. The Lord scoffs at him because uh, the Lord is the Lord. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of earth take their stand, and the rulers of the earth counsel against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us tear their feathers apart. Let us cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain." You see, Joseph was a righteous man, and he obeys the Lord immediately. Look at verse 14 back in our passage. And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. He rose and took the child and his mother by night. Joseph obeyed right away, right away. Now, there's all sorts of people say, well, he took him by night, and Joseph, that's why he went right away. Well, no, it just says he arose and did it. And certainly the Lord had told him to take him right away, and that was at night. And so he did so. And so he did so right away. Now, Egypt was a safe haven for Jews for about 300 years up to this point. And earlier, Alexander the Great had established a sanctuary for Jews in Alexandria. And during that time, even the Roman time, that was still considered a safe haven for Jews from uh, the Roman Empire. And I marvel here at the obedience of Joseph. I mean, he says, this angel, the Lord speaking through the angel, says, get up and go. And he gets up and go. I mean, you got a two-year-old. Wait a second. We've got to get stuff. We've got to get supplies. We've got to call everybody. We've got to do everything, right? He gets up and goes. I marvel at his obedience. The reality is there are many things in Scripture God tells us to do, and there's nothing really to contemplate. They're very clear. And we need to not lean on our own understanding, you see, because we get trapped in that. You see, 
But if the Lord is the Lord of your heart, if you trust him with all your heart, uh, we need to also not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge him, and he will make our path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. And we tend to do that when we try to figure out why and what, rather than just simply obeying the Lord in the timing that he says. Joseph is a man who didn't lean on his understanding. He didn't trust in his feelings. He just obeyed. And uh, there's no place other than that to be spiritually safe, trusting the Lord, not leaning on your own wisdom, but relying on Christ completely. And that is in the context of obedience. If you're not obeying the Lord, you're a target for Satan. We have an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in the faith or in your faith, the faith from the truth about Jesus that you believe concerning him. So then in the context of obedience, he, he, he departs for Egypt. Then look at verse 15. And was there until the death of Herod, remember he said, stay there till you hear. It's there until the death of Herod, that was that, that which was spoken that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. Now here we have a prophecy that is spoken of, that is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus going to Egypt, as we'll see, and ultimately coming out of Egypt back to Israel. And God wants us to understand this. As we look at this, it's easy to go, what is he talking about? But God wants us to understand what was fulfilled and how that applied uh, to Jesus as he fulfilled it. You see, Joseph was obediently uh, in, in Egypt, and he was to remain there until the death, or until he was called back. And then we have the death of Herod here. We have the death of Herod. And the purpose was that what was spoken by the Lord, the prophet, might be fulfilled. So, as we know, the Lord, through his prophets in the Old Testament, spoke his truth. God spoke through the prophets to the people, and it is recorded for us. Jeremiah chapter 23 speaks of the way God does this. Jeremiah 23, 21. Speaking of the false guys, we get a picture of what the real guys are. Jeremiah 23, 21. I did not send these prophets, but they ran. I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, they would have announced my words to my people and would have turned them back from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. God's spokesmen speak God's word, not their word. We see in the New Testament, if you speak, speak it as the very oracles of God. It needs to be God's word. We see in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, and I'll read this for you, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, written word, is a matter of one's own interpretation. There's, you don't sit down and figure out what the interpretation is and just decide it. No, there is an interpretation, but it is God's interpretation. For no prophecy of, was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So back in our passage, we have these uh, prophecies, and we're going to see three of them that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ in this situation, in this passage. And notice there's some different tenses, and we'll look at this more closely when we get there, but in verse 15, that future, what was spoken in the past through the prophets, might be future fulfilled, okay? And then here, verse 17 
we have a completed action in the past. That what was spoken through the Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. It happened, already done. And then, well, this will be important later, uh, verse 23, um, and came and resided in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. Again, future. Okay, and it's important because every word matters in Scripture. So then, Matthew was making it clear that their departure to Egypt, this would bring about the future fulfilling of the prophecy of their coming back out of Egypt, as we will see. This is going to fulfill that. So what is this prophecy that would be fulfilled? Let's take a look at our passage. And he arose, verse 14, and took the child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. And there were there, and was there until the death of Herod, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, by the Lord through the prophet, uh, might be fulfilled. That's future, uh, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. Now you go, wait a second, this is interesting. If you know the scriptures, you say, this is a quote from the book of Hosea. And this quote is speaking of Israel. How could this be speaking of Jesus? How could he fulfill this? Well, in the book of Hosea, let me remind you of the context. This will be helpful for us. The context of the book of Hosea speaks of God's faithfulness in spite of Israel's unfaithfulness. That's really what Hosea is about. And God calls upon Hosea to take a wife of harlotry. Her name is Gomer. This is a picture of Israel, who is blatantly at that time and unabashedly going after other gods, just like a harlot goes after other men. Okay, And although Hosea is heartbroken and grieved over her actions, he is faithful to her, redeeming her and loving her and keeping his covenant. And this is a picture of a faithful God to an unfaithful nation, Israel. That's what Hosea is about. And so he quotes from Hosea chapter 1. Let's take a look about uh, back at Hosea. Hosea, Joel, Amos. I'll say chapter 11, excuse me, I said 1, chapter 11, but it's going to be verse 1 we're going to start at. And this will help us understand this, this quote. Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. There is our quote that is fulfilled through Jesus going to, as we'll see, Egypt and coming out. And we'll have to ask how. The more they called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the, cor- with the cords of man, with bonds of love, and I became as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. I bent down and fed them, and they will not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria, and, but, and he will be their king because they refused to return to me. He's talking about how because he loved them and they didn't respond, they're going to go into captivity. They're going to go into captivity. So how does all of this uh, 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 relate to this quote back in our passage? Well, here, the context in Hosea is it's the nation of Israel. And in those verses, it was speaking of Israel returning from the Exodus 
out of Egypt I brought them, like a child loving them, right? The birth of the nation in a sense, right? I brought them out. He brought them out. But how does Christ going to Egypt and then coming out fulfill this prophecy? How does that happen? That's a good question. Well, first of all, we need to understand a couple things. Obviously, reading the New Testament reveals that this complete focus that God has revealed of the Old Testament puts focuses on Christ, focuses on Christ. Let me share in, in Luke 24. This is Jesus speaking to those disciples on the road to Emmaus, the day he had risen from the dead. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, all of them, by the way, which would have included Hosea, right? All the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. These things point to Christ. So with that in mind, how is it that the prophecy back in Matthew of God taking his son uh, Israel out of Egypt, how was that fulfilled in God the Son going out of Egypt? Well, first of all, the Old Testament speaks of Christ, and although veiled in some ways, we see that it speaks of him in times. We see there are shadows and pictures of what God would do in the Old Testament, which would be fulfilled in the New Testament. And I need to share one caveat here because we are not the ones who determine those shadows. God reveals them in the New Testament. He declares that he used this as a shadow back here. We don't just start to take everything allegorically and decide to interpret it the way we want to. That is evil, and that is why I can't uh, use an allegorical method, because that's up to man rather than God. But what we do know is when God says something in the New Testament about the Old Testament, then we can say that's what that was pointing to in the New Testament. And those are the ones that we can look at. For example, Colossians chapter 2 points out clearly certain elements of the Old Testament were types and shadows fulfilled in Christ. So now I know those were shadows that pointed to Christ. That's because God said so. But we don't want to be like Satan and take the word out of context. We don't have the liberty to choose what shadows and types they are. God decides and shares with us as he is in our passage here, saying, out of Egypt did I call my son. So how do we how do we understand this? Uh, obviously, what happened there in Egypt to Israel prefigures what would happen to Christ. How does it relate? Well, I believe just as Israel had to come out of Egypt for God to fulfill his redemptive promises to them, they had to come out for the fulfillment of his redemptive promises. He redeemed them from Egypt. He, they had to come out of there. So too Christ has to come out of Egypt also back to Israel to fulfill his redemptive promises actually for the very people that had rejected him. In spite of the fact that they were spiritually unfaithful, uh, this prefigures the fact that Christ would come out for the unfaithful and that he would redeem them. You see, he would have to come out of Egypt back to Israel to redeem his people. I believe that's what we're seeing here. If Israel was to be cut off in its infancy, God's redemptive promises wouldn't have been completed. If Jesus was to be cut off in his infancy by Herod, his redemptive promises would not have been completed. So out of Egypt, I call my son. And that's what we see here. That's what we see here. And thus the calling out of Egypt points to the fact that God would future tense, fulfill future tense, 
uh, deliverance from bondage of sin through Jesus Christ. It is from the bondage of sin that we are delivered. You see, Jesus went to Egypt to, to avoid being slaughtered from Herod. He was taken there that he might come out of Egypt and bring redemption for all of us. He came to seek and serve. Uh, ser- he came to serve, not to be served, but to, to, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. That's why he came. So that prefigured it, and that's what we see here. So then, it's a picture of deliverance fulfilled in Christ. Great deliverance fulfilled in Christ. You see, our unfaithfulness before salvation makes no bearing on salvation. We are, we are unfaithful, we are sinful, and God, in his faithfulness and his gracious love, offers salvation to us. And if you're willing to hear his voice and to listen and to respond, he will save you. He will save you. So then Christ coming out of Egypt is a picture of deliverance fulfilled in Christ. And then notice, uh, how else does he feel prophecy? Let's take a look at verse uh, 16. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. This is back in Matthew 2. And sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in its environs from two years old and under according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Herod's a bad dude. He is an evil man. He's an evil man. Uh, This term being tricked uh, is translated almost completely every other time mocked. It's the same word being used when Jesus was mocked. Herod believed, and he was, in a sense, mocked by the Magi because they were to return and say, hey, here's where he's at. But God warned them, and they split and so he was uh, tricked in a sense, right? And he was enraged because of, he was mocked in a sense by the Magi through their actions. And he became very enraged. You could translate this, he became exceedingly angry. You could just see Herod blowing, a, blowing his top, right? Exceedingly angry. And this is what he did. Awful. Sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all the environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Based on what the Magi had given him earlier when the star had appeared, Herod figured out the the age that Christ would probably be, and he went out and slew the children in that area and around. This is quite disturbing if you think about it. This is quite disturbing. Um, If you've got children, young children, you can imagine the pain of those who had their children slaughtered. This is very disturbing. Now, although Herod uh, slaughtered many people, history doesn't record this specific slaughter, and I believe there's good reason why, because the area in which he slaughtered these children was a very small area, and it's estimated was probably 15 to 30 male children that were killed. But uh, one is too many. And so here we have some complex issues to deal with, if you think through it. And we've got to be careful not to lean on our own understanding, but to yield our thoughts over to the Lord. Remember, God is sovereign. He allowed Herod to do this. Uh, he was acting, Herod, in accordance with his father, the devil, who's a murderer. And indeed, everyone who is not in Christ is in the domain of darkness. And here uh, we see that quite possibly, I think if anyone was elevated to the same position as Herod, the same power, the same abilities, no consequences, they might have done the same thing. You've got babies aborted every day around here. 
you got stuff happening. I think mankind is very capable when there is no restraint of acting like their spiritual father, the devil, in murdering. So then we have this terrible murder of these kids, these awful execution in the hands of the unbelieving King Herod, to which Matthew points out now a prophecy was fulfilled. And this is kind of disturbing at first, but we have to stick into this and understand where it came from. He says here, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew the male children who were in Bethlehem and its environs from two years old and under, according to the time which he had ascertained from the Magi. Then that which was spoken, here you go, through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. That prophecy was fulfilled at this point. Okay? Saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. So, first of all, we have a prophecy being fulfilled in the death of these children by King Herod. And what was the prophecy? It was a prophecy of Jeremiah. Of Jeremiah. A voice heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. And looking at this passage, um, it appears to be, just from Matthew, that it's only speaking of the grief associated with the child being murdered. And certainly that was fulfilled. There's no doubt about that. But what is the extent of this fulfillment? Indeed, this quote is from Jeremiah 31, and Ramah was an area just north of Jerusalem on the border of of Judea, Judea, uh, the southern kingdom, and Israel, the northern kingdom. And it's interesting that Ramah was the place where Jerusalem and Judah were gathered before they were exiled into Babylon. That's where they were gathered together. And this is going to make sense in a second. The term Rachel, uh, in the context, as we'll see, of Jeremiah 31, spoke of the Jewish mothers who had lost their children during the siege of Jerusalem and the subsequent exile. This spoke of those women who had lost their children when Israel was seized and God allowed it because of sin and their children died and they were weeping. And so how does that get fulfilled in Herod killing his children? Well, we got to go to Jeremiah 31. Because if you're not a Jew and you don't know the Old Testament, then you wouldn't understand how this is fulfilled. See, but if you were a Jew and you knew the Old Testament, you would realize... The context of this passage came from Jeremiah 31. And the context is that grief of the Jews who were taken into Babylonian exile, uh, and they were exhorted to stop grieving because redemption was coming. So that's interesting. They were told to stop grieving because redemption was coming. Look at Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31. For the Lord, verse 11, has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who was stronger than he, and they shall come and shout out. They shall come and shout for joy in the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the bounty of the Lord, over the grain, over the new wine, over the oil, and over the young flocks of the herd. And their life shall be like watered garden. They shall never languish again. Then the virgins shall rejoice in the dance. The young man shall, and the old shall laugh old together. For I will turn their mourning into joy. Look at that. And they will comfort them, and I will give them joy for their sorrow. And I will fill the soul of the priests with abundance, and my people shall be satisfied 
with my goodness, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation, bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they're no more. There's our quote, right? And he goes on. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord, and you shall return from the land of the enemy, and there is hope for you, a future, declares the Lord, and your children shall return to, re, return to their own territory. He's saying basically those, to those Jews initially that were in being punished, uh, being exiled, don't weep, God's going to deliver you. Don't weep. And in the same way here, this horrible event which exhibits the, the, the depth of sinfulness that even in the midst of that horrible event, which was just like how horrible it was for the Jewish mothers back in the exile, in that horrible event of what, of what, of what Herod brought forth, there was and there will be redemption. There will be redemption. Don't cry in that sense because redemption is coming. It's not telling Jewish mothers to stop weeping because their kids got murdered by Herod. It's pointing to the fact that there will be joy. And if you understood this passage, it was a promise in the midst of the most evil that redemption was coming. In the midst of the most evil of Herod, redemption is coming. It's going to be fulfilled. I believe that's what's going on. He's going to save his people from their sins. So what can we learn from this? Obviously, uh, like Joseph understood when his brothers uh, were before him. He said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good, the, the delivering of these people. Uh, Romans 8.28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. Yes, there are extremely evil events happening, but that is just in a moment in time, God is going to bring redemption he is going to bring salvation, and here for the nation of Israel, it would come through Jesus Christ and for us, for us. You know, God will also work out his redemptive purposes in you, if you see that rightly. Go through First Peter. If we allow uh, him to control us, we don't revile and return, we keep entrusting ourselves to the one who judges righteously, then we're going to have opportunities, having set apart Christ as Lord of our hearts, to give an account for the hope that we have. But God is the one who makes that happen. So then, we see that God uses things for good. But there's another application for those who don't believe in Christ. If you hold on to your uh, own sovereignty and power, it's going to be taken from you. You will be ta- it will be taken from you, and Christ will triumph. Your attempts to live a futile life apart from Christ uh, will not be successful. Will not be successful. So then, we have these two prophecies fulfilled. What about the third one? Let's take a look back in the Matthew chapter two, verse nineteen. But when Herod was dead. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. Now we got to remember the flow of this book and why are these prophecies coming in here in chapter 2, right before we'll see uh, the baptism and the ministry of Jesus Christ, right? We'll see John the Baptist and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Why is this being brought forth here. Why is it so important that these particular prophecies are relayed here? So notice he says, appeared to him in dreams saying, rise, take the child, his mother, and go into the land of Israel, 
for those who sought the child's life are dead. They're dead. Now, we don't know how long uh, Jesus was in Egypt. Um, it says the child's life, Pidean, small child. It's implied that it wasn't very long. It's implied. He wasn't like a teenager in Egypt. Uh, all the evil uh, uh, history channel people and all of them that say, oh, Jesus learned the magic arts in, in Egypt and all that baloney, all that blasphemous stuff is not true. Uh, he came back as a child. He came back, or even the term infant or baby almost. And so we hear that the one who sought his life is dead. Those who sought it. That's primarily Herod and his cronies, right? Okay. And Herod uh, had an awful death. You can read all about it from uh, Josephus. He writes about it. Uh, but he, uh, his, uh, his guts and his entrails were putrefied, maggot-filled organs, constant convulsions. Not a pretty sight. Not a pretty sight. So what did Herod profit? He had gained everything, didn't he, initially, right? What did he profit? Uh, seeking his own desire. You know, uh, Matthew 16. Turn up to Matthew 16. You see, you have a choice to come to Jesus and deny yourself and find joy and peace, or to hold on to your life and maybe have some temporary happiness, if you can call it that, and then you're going to lose everything. And Herod lost everything, by the way. Matthew 16, 24, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You've got to say no to yourself. That's part of being a Christian. We should be saying no every day to stuff. We shouldn't be just letting our desires flow free. We should be going, nope, by the power of the Spirit. Right? Um, he said here, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever wishes to lose his life for my sake, which I do and I hope you do too, shall find it. For what will a man be profited if he gains the whole world and forfeits his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then will recompense every man according to their deeds. Herod died, and he's in Hades awaiting his eternal judgment and the second death. He didn't gain anything. He lost it all. He lost his soul. So then Herod is dead, and the angel appears and tells him, hey, he's dead, and bring him back, right? Bring back the child. Uh, arise and take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And what does Joseph do? Joseph, see, he does it, 21. And he arose and took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. Again, Joseph is a good guy. He's an obedient guy. He obeys the Lord, and he does it. He does it. But notice, there's some problems here. Look at verse 22. But when he had heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Joseph heard, uh, son, not a great guy, he's reigning. And notice we have, uh, and by the way, Archelaus, this is a bad guy. History reveals that his son wasn't much better than his dad, but his son wasn't really focused on this child. That wasn't his focus, but he was a murderer too. And, 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 uh, and uh, Joseph is uh, concerned about that. Notice God's gracious intervention. You know, God is so good. He's so you walk with him, you, you trust him, he will lead you. you. You yield your ways to him. He's going to intervene with his word and give you the instruction you need. But when he had heard, uh, or actually, in but, uh, verse 22, end of 22, 
And being warned by God in a dream, he departed for the regions of Galilee and came and resided in a city called Nazareth. Remember, they had left from Bethlehem, right? A city called Nazareth. Called Nazareth. And now Nazareth was uh, where Mary and Joseph were from. And so having been warned by God, instead of going to most likely Bethlehem, they went to Nazareth. And that was about 55 miles north of Jerusalem, north of uh, of Jerusalem in the Galilee region. And so notice what happens to a city called, it says, uh, departed and came and resided to a city called Nazareth. That, here we go, what was spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. And here we go. He shall be called a Nazarene. Okay, the third fulfillment. The third fulfillment, third prophecy fulfilled in Christ coming back in some manner, coming out of Egypt, coming back. And the prophecy was that which was spoken by plural, the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, some people have said that maybe uh, they're not, they don't, because there's no specific prophecy in the Old Testament, there's nowhere, anywhere, that says he shall be called a Nazarene. It's not recorded here, okay, in that exact words. And so some have thought maybe the word Nazar, which meant branch, he should be called the branch. You know, we know that, but I don't think that's what it's saying. So how is it fulfilled? Notice, first of all, the language, that what was spoken through the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. Prophets, plural. Multiple prophets spoke of something that would be fulfilled in the statement he would be called a Nazarene. And why is this important for the Gospel of Matthew? You've got a Redeemer, You've got one who brings hope out of death, and you've got this one, right? Why is this important? Well, I think it has to do with the idea of Nazareth, and if you understood it at this time, Nazareth was not a compliment. If you were from Nazareth, uh, you were, in the eyes of the Jews of this day, uh, uh, someone who was a country bumpkin. You were a, a nobody if you were from Nazareth. You were kind of despised. You were a low life from Nazareth. And I believe throughout Scripture, uh, we have the prophets speaking of the fact that Jesus would be despised, that he would be despised. And this fulfills it as he goes with Mary and resides in Nazareth. Indeed, Psalm 22, verses 6 to 8, we see that Jesus would be reproached by men, despised of the people. He would be called the despised one in Isaiah 49. We know in Isaiah 53 very clearly that uh, he grew our griefs and his sorrows are carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him smitten, stricken, smitten of God. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, um, crushed for our iniquities, chastening for our well-beings fell upon him, and by his scourging we were healed. But before that it says that he was despised and forsaken of men and acquainted with grief and one from whom men hid their face. And they just all the prophets spoke of in one manner of the prophets, of the prophets plural. We have it in, in the Psalms, we have it in Isaiah, we have it throughout, speaking of the fact he would be not all, but the prophets, some of the prophets spoke of it. So we have here the fact that he would be despised. And God would use this again, his son being rejected by men is the very means in which he would bring salvation. The very means in which he would bring salvation again. Satan meant it for evil, uh, and God meant it for good. You remember in in Genesis, uh, it was prophesied that uh, 
that uh, his heel would be bruised, but he would crush Satan's head. Yes, Satan would give it his blow, but that blow God would use to bring about the redemption and salvation of his people. As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring this present result to preserve many. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So then we have three prophecies fulfilled in Jesus Christ, which are crucial to understand for the rest of the book of Matthew. The first one that Christ would have to come out of Egypt to redeem and bring redemption for his people. The second one that in the midst of horrible, painful death and sorrow, hope is coming through Jesus Christ who brings redemption. And lastly, the people would reject him and despise him, but yet from that rejection would come salvation in Jesus Christ. And so we have three prophecies fulfilled. So how does this apply to us? Well, first of all, if you don't know Christ, everything you do is against him, no matter what it is, good or bad. You see, if you're not with him, you're against him, and it will not succeed. It will not succeed. And if you continue to oppose Christ, you will end up like Herod. You will die in your sins, and you'll be punished eternally for your sins. But the good news is in spite of your and my complete unfaithfulness before Christ, Jesus Christ came and died for our sins. And he is the only source of true hope. He is the only source of redemption and forgiveness of sins. And although we have despised him in our actions and we have rejected him, if we turn to him and ask for salvation, he will save us. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. What about you and I, brother and sister? Do you see the evil difficulties God allows as redemptive opportunities for him to manifest the character of Christ and lay forth opportunities for the gospel? We need to see it that way. And we should not worry or fear for all the evil around us because God is sovereign and in control. And until he comes, he is saving people. Uh, he is not, uh, he is patient, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And so may we, as we move out of this Christmas season, remember why Christ came and died for us. He died for our sins. And that we would be, uh, hopefully those, a vessel of good news to those around us concerning Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you that your son fulfills these prophecies that we have redemption and we have hope in the midst of horrible death and evil and that uh, although we have despised you, salvation is available through your son Jesus. Lord, I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you that they would turn and believe in your son Jesus. And that for those of us who do, that we would be praising you and glorifying you for what you've done through him. And that we would remember and look back to his life and death for us until he comes again for us. In his precious name, amen.